Hey everyone, I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at the No Film School Podcast, which is the podcast you're listening to right now. And today, we have a couple of guests who are the cinematographers on the very popular, well-loved show, Station Eleven. If you haven't heard about Station Eleven, I think you're in for a treat, because people everywhere are saying this show is absolutely amazing. It's streaming on HBO Max. It is based on a novel, national bestseller of the same name. And today our guests are Steve Cosens and Daniel Grant, who are the two gentlemen who shot Station Eleven. And I'll leave it to them to sort of explain all the, the challenges that faced them because the pandemic hit in the middle of this shoot, which is something that, that's become a recurring theme on this podcast and in our, in our lives and in production and et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that's just crazy is the meta-ness of all of this because Station Eleven is about a plague, basically, that brings upon a version of the end times, which is the irony of that. Now, hopefully we're not in the end times, although it's debatable, but the irony of that happening while they're filming is just one of those weird little things. So it's a fun nugget within this interview. But joining me to talk to them is our own senior writer, Jason Hellerman. And Jason has some great questions he adds into the mix because Jason has just been an avid fan of the property and I wanted him involved. So here we go. Station 11, Steve Cosens and Daniel Grant. Thank you guys both for being here. We are really thrilled to have you, both of you, and talk about Station 11. I guess one thing I like to start with usually, and you guys can jump in and Jason, this, this question doesn't apply to you, <laughs> but what uh, got you guys started as cinematographers? Like s- sort of what was your foot in the door and began your careers? Steve, you want to go first? Um, I, would say I went to an art school in Vancouver called Emily Carr College of Art and Design. And I studied film video there. And I went there. I was really just uh, working on my own experimental documentaries. And I happened to do a short film that was a real passion project. It was on my, it was kind of an experimental black and white film that I did on my grandparents. My, my grandfather had fallen off a ladder and broken his skull in Alberta. And I went back to his birthplace in the small house that still existed on the prairies and I, it was, it was kind of just experimental, but it was about time and memory. And I did this film and I had no intent of sending it out to film festivals or anything. But when I finished it, people really loved it. And everybody was like, Oh my God, Steve, you should send this out and try to get in some film festivals. And I was like, okay. So I sent it out and humbly, I say that it won every festival that I sent it into for either short documentary or short experimental documentary. And for me, it was a real kind of revelation. I was like, oh, okay, people like what I'm doing, and people really start to comment on the cinematography. And from there, people at school started asking me to shoot their short films. And before I knew it, I was kind of a cinematographer, and it happened really organically and without even, not even thinking about it. I just kind of flowed into it. That's how I got started. Awesome. So it was you. You think the photography of the film sort of dictated the the kind of calling card for you that people glommed onto? Well, I think 
you know, it was a, it's, you know, it's a beautiful poetic little film, but it was shot in high con black and white. And so I think the images were very stark and striking. And I think it, it kind of stood out from other short films at the time, particularly for the, the cinematography, I guess. Had you had experience shooting film prior to that? Well, that was my, I think that was my second film that I made. My first one was also kind of an experimental black and white film. And, you know, at Emily Carr, they really encouraged process. So we were shooting a lot of film, just, you know, short, you know, short little things and processing yeah. it ourselves and editing it ourselves. And so, you know, I was during the course of my time at Emily Carr, I was making a bunch of little shorts. And that one in particular was my second short. Daniel, do you want to jump in and, and give us a little bit of your background or your initial sort of like foot in the door project? Sure. Yeah. Like, so I kind of grew up not really knowing anything about the film industry, but I got really into photography when I was in high school. And at, previous to that, I think I thought I was going to go into science or medicine or something like that. Cause I think I just, uh, everybody in my family kind of either came from sort of like a really right brain background or really left brain. And I think I just thought I somehow I fit into more of that like science that for some reason I, th I thought I would fit more into that. And I got really into photography and just spent all my time in the basement. Basically I loved being in, in the dark room mostly. And around the same time, really got into watching movies and it kind of came together. I realized that there was this thing called the director of photography. So I kind of changed track and, and went to film school and just loved the process of working with mostly just like the process of working with people, you know, with other filmmakers. And I loved that position. I always have loved the position of cinematographer because it's kind of, um, you get to be part of this process and, but you know, you're kind of, your work is sort of amplifying the voice of someone else and finding ways to kind of strengthen, you know, that voice. And I, I think that just fits my, it's also always kind of fit my personality. I've always enjoyed that. So I, you know, after I graduated, I mostly worked in documentary for a while because I really, I think for a while I thought that's actually what I really wanted to do. I loved shooting doc and, but I would kind of in between doc projects, I would do, you know, little short films. Like I went to school in Toronto, so I stayed there afterwards. I'm from the kind of uh, East coast of Canada originally. And Toronto has a great, independent film community and you know so i would do these shorts and those little shorts kind of got bigger and bigger and very slowly though i mean i i honestly i kind of stumbled around for many years kind of trying to figure out you know what my path forward was but i kind of always enjoyed it even working on like really tiny stuff like i loved doing that so and those eventually those turned into really really small features and then you know it just kind of you just slowly kind of creep forward and and it was through some of the feature work I had done that some of the people involved with Station Eleven had kind of knew of my work through that and that's how I got connected and and um, yeah, Steve I and wanna, I worked together. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. I was just gonna say I want to ask if it gets to station eleven, but I do and Jason, I want to hand off to you a little bit, but I did I did want to ask because I noticed you both sort of seem to have started with particularly a love of of film and film mm -hmm. processing. Is that something you guys have talked about before? Does it inform you still on everything or is it just kind of the start point? Have you guys that, talked about how you both like shooting film? 
<laughs> like that's where you began, you know, and like using celluloid in general, being in the dark room, exposing on black and white, you know, that's, those are not things that people today are doing as much on these projects, you know? Yeah. I mean, no, Daniel and I have never really talked about our histories. I don't think, have we, Daniel? I don't think so. <laughs> not really. You just, you told me a couple of stories of your crazy childhood, you know, like living in the North and stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like some really good stories there, but no, not, not really. Like, I, I was kind of always been aware of Steve's work because of like, especially in the Toronto independent film community. I mean, Steve just is kind of one of these DPs that has a lot of interesting stuff. Like he'll do like a big TV show and then he'll go shoot like a tiny dock somewhere in some remote place or something, or at least that, that's what it's, as it always seemed like to me, like he was kind of always bouncing around between these different, all these different types of filmmaking and, and I always thought a lot of the cinematographers that I think are really interesting often, you know, do that, you know, just finding like interesting stories. And then you, you know, can uh, are able to be a little bit of a chameleon to kind of like find the best way to tell that story, not necessarily impose their own style on it. And um, what was the first thing? And you I don't guys, know how uh, I got off on, on that. But. Well, yeah, I just started asking if you guys talked about your film, right. shared film history, but. Uh, what was your first project where you worked together? Well, this is uh, Steve. Probably you don't probably don't remember this, but I was actually an electric just for a couple of days on this movie, Nurse Fighter Boy, oh. and yeah, which is uh, which was wow. a really great film. And I came out for a couple of nights because a friend of mine was like the best boy on it or something. And this was probably not long after I graduated, and I was like, "Whoa, this guy's like." lighting with like lights from home depot and stuff <laughs> you know he was like all these these like lights like you know like bolted to the walls that were like old mercury halide light that came out oh, yeah. of like a rubber mm-hmm. tub or something like that and i was like whoa this is weird i didn't know you could shoot like this and now i feel like that process is a little bit more like that it's more common nowadays i think but at the time, it was a little bit mind-blowing. I was like, whoa, weird. I didn't know you could like light like this. So that was actually the first time, which we never didn't even talk. But uh, we right. since so, then, okay. we've, yeah, since then, we've, like, I did a little bit of second unit for Steve on something on a TV show a couple of years ago. But then this is first time we've really worked together on a series, which I think for both of us, actually, well, it's my first TV series, but neither of us had kind of like alternated like ha- worked with another DP on a show before, which was, you know, interesting. And Steve, I'm sure you have thoughts on that. Well, I, um, I did a film, well, I've done a few things with Bruce McDonald. This, you know, he's like the, he's like the, he's the king of the North. I don't, it's hard to describe Bruce McDonald. Daniel knows him. And, and I first heard about Daniel because Daniel shot a film with Bruce, right? Was it? Did, yeah. Were you sh- yeah. I remember Bruce just saying, yeah, I'm working with this young guy, Daniel Grant, and he's, he's, he, he works a lot like you and you guys, you know, you really get along and you guys really come from the same place. And that was the first time that I heard of Daniel. And then I saw the work that he did. And I was like, oh yeah, no, he's totally you know, doing great work here in the city. And it was, it was, it was just my, that was my introduction, I guess, to Daniel. Say, oh, never, he was the electric on that indie film. <laughs> 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 but we've never really collaborated together on anything until sure. Station Eleven. Yeah. Tonight, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. 
Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs, streaming tonight only on Disney Plus. I, I guess let's get into that then, and you can tell us a little bit about what that like handoff is like. You know, cinematographer usually you're working with the director, everybody else, and in this instance, you're also working with a sort of partner cinematographer. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it, it's interesting. It was new for me in a lot of ways because my background is mostly kind of indie features. And I think that was actually one of the things that the the producers were sort of looking for too, was not necessarily like DPs that shot a lot of television. I think they were maybe looking for something a little bit different. And also like the pilot, so two of the episodes actually were shot pre-COVID and those were shot in Chicago. And the rest of the series was done much later. They had to shut down, obviously, because of COVID. And then it came back much later. We shot the rest of it in and around Toronto. So it was also interesting kind of like picking up from stuff that had been established by another director, DP. So that was those were shot by director Hiro Murai and, and uh, DP Christian Sprenger, who did. I mean, they and they do like amazing, really amazing work. I mean, that was one of the things that was really attractive about the project was that they had established something like a world along with the you know the production designer Ruth Ammon. They really established a world that was like really had so much room to play in, and also had set a really high bar. And so that was kind of that was it was very new to kind of. Because basically, the series, it jumps back and forth between what we were calling kind of year zero and year 20, because it it jumps through time. So those episodes only dealt with year zero, kind of the pre-pandemic. Because we haven't talked about it yet, but basically... They were shot (laughs) pre-pandemic. Yeah, it was also shot pre-pandemic. So so you don't... So in the the story of Station Eleven, there is a pandemic that it's hard to it's a it's a weird kind of the the show show is kind of hard to describe because there's so much going on but essentially uh, a pandemic happens right at the beginning of the series and you know 99 percent of the world's population dies like within like days and but you don't really see that it's not a the show is not really about the pandemic per se you just see everything that's before and after so year 20 is 20 years later with some of the same characters and so the year zero had been established in those episodes, but year 20 hadn't been yet. So we were kind of taking inspiration from year zero, but just finding also the ways to reinterpret it for year 20. And so that was just, just a really interesting process that involved, you know, collaborating with each other, but also like the directors involved and, and obviously Patrick Somerville, the, the showrunner. Yeah. So I kind of rambling there for a while, but. Oh, that's good. Steve, do you want to come yeah. in? Yeah, um, you know, the first two episodes, when I saw those first two episodes, I was really inspired them, like Daniel. And uh, I, I just, I love the pacing and they were very kind of simply elegant. You know, they weren't flashy. I thought the photography was really, it was just simple and elegant, I guess. And I really thought, okay, this is, they're speaking a language that I can 
take and move forward with. And I didn't have to think, oh, how am I going to take this look and make it make it my own? Like, really, it was just so easy. I was like, okay, this is what these guys are doing. I feel like I'm speaking the same language. And I think Daniel maybe felt the same way. Like, it was it was something we could jump on board with easily. Those guys had not really talked so much about the future because I remember Christian was saying that they didn't even really have any scripts that future episodes were that I don't think those have been fleshed out yet. So that was quite, quite a, a mystery to them still. So when they moved to Toronto, that was where Daniel and I really kind of dove in and really started to world build with Ruth and, and Patrick and Jeremy Padeswa. One of the one of the things that struck us just was the look and the feel of the future that you guys defined. You know, it's so green. I think like the the word baby is like sumptuous. Like it's it's popping with colors and and beautiful. And, and that's something that we hadn't seen in like a dystopia TV show before. I think. You know, could you get maybe just talk about the collaboration you have with the showrunner and and the episodes that came before you? Had you guys kept that theme going because it's something that you don't even shy away from. As the show gets, let's say, thematically darker, the deeper you go, it's still full of color and life in a way that I, I again, I don't think we've seen on television before. Well, I think what, one of the big kind of guiding principles was this idea that this future would be kind of beautiful and welcoming and lush. Because the thing is, like, our um, culture is like so. Uh, obsessed with foretelling the future and so we're kind of like awash in apocalyptic imagery <laughs> it seems like especially in the last few years and so the idea was to really just create more like a counterpoint to that so that it would be more of yeah a lush beautiful world where nature has really returned because there are no very few humans around <laughs> but that was but also that nature is you know, nature, it's, it's actually that it's a beautiful thing and it's a welcoming thing and that nature is safe. And and so we really, that visually wanted to represent that. And what was the other thing I was going to add to that? That was, oh yeah. So the thing is the, um, the story is really about like how a world rebuilds itself after, well, it's about many things, but one of the things for me that I keep in mind is that it's about is that it's about a world that is rebuilding itself after catastrophe and the things that you want to take with you from that old world and the things that you want to leave behind. And to me, that is so, you know, couldn't be more fitting to our world today. And it just blows my mind that the, you know, this whole thing started before COVID and previous to that, based on a book that was written in beautiful book based that was written in 2014 by uh, Emily St. John Mandel, who's just like an amazing author. And yeah, so I think that was just an important thing that we tried to keep in mind all the time. And Ruth, the production designer, like she was just such a huge part of, of creating that World 20 look. You know, like that was really so much of her vision, I think, like where, because it's so easy to fall into the science fiction tropes, the, the genre tropes. It's just so easy, especially when you're looking for locations and stuff like that. Like in Toronto, we have like all of the typical post-apocalyptic locations Warehouses. that people have gone to many times. And it's like, oh, we'll go to that place. You know, Ruth was really, um, yeah, like she just had a really good intuition about trying to, you know, choose things that were 
just not typical and something that would be kind of like fresh and interesting and just offer like a just a new take on it. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think one of the things that we were conscious of is that we were going to be jumping back and forth between the year 20 material and the year zero material. And we just wanted to make sure that there was some, you know, visual separation between those two times, but without it feeling like you were jumping from one show to a different show, you know? And so it, as per what Daniel was saying, Patrick wanted it to feel, you know, more lush, but it was just finding that balance between how do we make it lush and green but still cuttable against the previous year zero stuff that was a little bit more desaturated and and I guess more monochrome in a way. So that was something that we kind of refined in in our shooting, but also when we got into the color correction, I would say a lot of those subtler decisions about how the, the final color and the final look were really nuanced there with uh, Cody Baker. When you guys approach an episode, are you storyboarding you know, and then talking with the director and figuring it out? Are you sort of shooting on the fly? How do you make those decisions for the shots and camera angles for each episode? For myself, you know, I was working mostly with Jeremy Padesla, who really liked to storyboard and to really have, you know, set frames and set camera moves and stuff like that for a lot of the scenes, not all of them. So I did that more than I've ever done, actually. I would say that, generally speaking, I i mean, if it's a big, complicated sequence where there's visual effects and whatnot, then it's good. I, I appreciate having storyboards. But I often like kind of freewheeling a little bit. And as long as I am comfortable and grounded with the director, and we both know what we're doing when we go into any given space. I like being a little bit more flexible and not necessarily pre-planning the lighting or, you know, I set myself up so I know what, what I'm going to need in that space, but I like to give more flexibility to actors and to how things are going to unfold, which we did somewhat on station 11. I think just because there was so much to do in a short period of time on a tight schedule, we probably storyboarded more. And one of the things George and I talked about a lot was how, I mean, for lack of a better word, courageous it was at times for you guys to be super close up on someone's face. And then also you have a drone shot, you know, miles away from them. And I think one of the things that sticks out, I think it's episode four, where you have someone, we have somebody walking across a field and you're start close on her face. And then suddenly it feels like we're, you know, hundreds of feet above her, um, Mm -hmm. you know, doing that. And obviously a lot of that's built in the edit, but so much of it's shot by you guys. I'm just wondering, like, do you talk about that beforehand? Is that something you've found later? Um, just because I think that it's in every episode, just like you're mm-hmm. so close with people, but you always remind us that you're absolutely alone. And spoiler, at the end of the series, we're very close with everyone at the end. And when you cut back outward, everyone's walking toward the airport, you're reminded that they're not alone. I just thought that was mm-hmm. such a, I mean, it's the entire show in two shots. And, you know, I know, I think Steve, you did, you shot the um, finale as well, episode 10. So wondering if you guys can yep. go into just that overarching theme of these extreme close-ups and then also extreme wides, and then maybe even uh, just tell us how you did them. Where are they drones? Are they digital, et cetera? Well, that was I would say that was one of the one of the kind of big visual motifs in the series was this idea of seeing having the the intimate and the epic kind of play out alongside each other. And that was a motif that was really set in 
with uh, Hiram and Christian's work on the pilot where, you know, you'd be in close to these characters and then you'd cut to like these big overhead shots, which we actually, we would sometimes call that the Dr. Eleven perspective, this idea, because it's hard to explain who Dr. Eleven is uh, if you haven't seen the show, but basically it's a fictional character. It's a fictional story within this story of this character who's kind of in, in space. And there's a scene where you kind of see this character looking down upon the world. So it's almost like a satellite image. And this idea of like, there's this cool term that I heard recently that like called the overview effect. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this before. It's like when astronauts have like circled the earth, like it's like a, a certain number of times they, something happens to your brain and you have this, and you begin to like perceive reality in a different way. I don't know how real no, this, how, no, how familiar how this with the actually is, but this is yeah, a science fiction movie cool in itself, idea. you know? Yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but just this idea of, 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 of this, this perspective that kind of connects all these different time periods. Cause I think the thing that's interesting is that the, when it's cutting back and forth in the time periods, it's not really, nothing is really a flash forward or a flashback. It's kind of, it's very immediate when you're in it. And that was something we talked about what we were kind of trying to puzzle out, like, oh, is this scene a flashback? Or because we had certain, certain episodes were all year 20 and had like maybe like a few year zero scenes. And because we kind of needed to understand that to know how even just to photograph that or how to move in and out of those scenes. And I think this, the idea that, no, these are whatever time period in is like very immediate for that kind of subjective perspective. And, and so I think that this idea of playing with, you know, that, as I say, like the, both the intimate and the epic in the same scene was kind of part of the whole like visual language of the piece. And I would say for them in terms of planning, like it really depended, like in terms of like the directors I worked with were Lucy Cherniak and Helen Shaver. And the first thing we shot was episode seven and that was because we actually had more prep time. We actually really planned that out. So a lot of those overhead shots and things were, we, we planned in advance and we knew we had to cut, you know, holes in ceilings and stuff like that. And then after that episode, it was kind of, we were just like constantly kind of running after that. So a lot of stuff was sort of, it was kind of, with every scene, we kind of figured out, okay, these are sort of the tools we might need, you know, to capture these perspectives. but you know, the specifics of it, we kind of have to figure out on the day with the actors there, especially actors, you know, scenes with like a lot of people in them, like some scenes had like, you know, eight or 10 characters and there really wasn't necessarily time to like sit down and think about how we we're going to cover these scenes in advance. You know, to get those shots, which were from a drone, we didn't always have the drone drone team there. So it was also just a matter of budget sometimes, you know, that we really had to pick and choose. Okay this is the moment that we need to have that or want to have that. Can we get it there? Can we get it here? And we had to make those choices ahead of time because we also had to book the drone guys. So, you know, in some ways, sometimes I wish we could have had a bit more of that in there, but really it was a budgetary thing in the end. Yeah. You know? I mean, it worked out beautiful. It just, it is really poignant. Um, another thing that we've talked about is just like part of this TV series takes place in an airport over the course of 20 years. What was it like shooting in an abandoned airport? You know, is it hard to light with big open spaces? You know, how'd you guys tackle that set? Uh, well, when we first walked into this airport, the, uh, Pearson Airport in Toronto, they had leased this big chunk of, 
of the airport to a company that was then renting it out to film companies. And we were the first production to shoot in there. And normally when you shoot airports, you shoot at convention centers or you shoot at libraries, I don't know, any other place because it's so difficult to actually, you know, get the permissions to shoot in an airport. And so when we walked in there and saw that we had just miles of, of windows and space to our art direct, we, we painted it, we did everything we wanted to do in there. And to actually pull up a plane to the Jeffridge if we wanted to, you know, it was incredible. And we were so excited by that, that it was such a relief too, because we did start to go down the road thinking, oh, okay, we can shoot this part at the science center. We can shoot this part at this other convention center and we'll kind of, you know, fuse it together in the editing. But when we finally got that, that uh, one space, it was such a relief and, and really such a joy because it was so beautiful. I thought, and the windows, for the most part, the windows faced uh, north and east. So for a good chunk of the day, it was all just ambient light. So it was, we didn't have to, we were less concerned about dealing with the, the direct sun coming through the windows. And all the windows had electronic uh, blinds on them. So you could open and close them and you could create contrast, you know, in any given scene. And it was actually, I mean, it was easy to shoot, but it was also like shooting, it was kind of like shooting an exterior location in, in that as soon as the sun went down, you were kind of dead in there. You know, it was beautiful when the sun was up, but at some point in the day, you're always like, oh my God, oh my God, let's keep going, keep going, you know? So yeah, I don't know. Daniel, thoughts about the airport? Well, the um, thing that um, was crazy about the airport was that it was still, it, it was, it was, it was a, um, one of the terminals it was the terminal that wasn't being used, but the airport itself was still running. And so this, anything where we had to shoot outside, like on the tarmac, or we had, um, for one of the episodes, there's this little kind of quarantine encampment area that, that is built out there. And anything outside the airport was really crazy and kind of stressful because Every little piece of equipment that was, if it was going to be on the, on the tarmac, it we needed to provide like all the specifications like weeks in advance, even when we kind of didn't exactly know even what we were going to be shooting out there. So, because like lights, like I remember I wanted to have a light on a, like basically on a giant lift. And they were like, no, you can't have anything taller than the building. Because otherwise, like, well, it messes up the radio tower. And then anybody trying to land is going to just see this massive light. And that could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the, the tarmac itself that we were shooting on that runway, it was technically an emergency landing runway still. And it was because it was COVID, there weren't too many planes taking off and landing, thankfully, but but literally like there is a full-on functioning airport that happening like in the background. Even the like there's all these lights along the top of the terminal building. And the airport was like, no, you can't turn those off. And I had year 20 stuff that I had to shoot there. So we had, we were just trying to figure out like, can we justify the fact that there's all this massive amount of light out there? And we really had nowhere else to do these scenes. So it was kind of. I keep thinking uh, now about the production sound, loving that you're shooting in a functional airport. That must have been a dream well, come true for those guys. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was even the uh, radar tower. Like every, we knew every time a plane would take off and land because all the follow focuses would, um, 
they'd freak they out so. and kind of start yeah. like you know it was like the the plane was suddenly took over the follow focus because we actually yeah. had our studio was all, an airplane hangar like the studio where we had some we didn't do that much studio work but this the place where we were building sets like the frank's apartment set that was all in an airport hangar essentially so it was interesting I'm curious, what did you guys, can you tell us what you shot on? Lenses, camera, you know, they, we didn't actually cover that yet. So <laughs> it's just because people always want to know. Uh, we shot in the Alexa Mini LF and we shot with master built lenses and we shot with the Tribe 7 Blackwing lenses. Was the choice I, of lens, I mean, cam- that's a camera everybody wants to use. So I feel like you were probably both pretty happy with that. But uh, was the lens choice a collaboration or was it kind of established on that pilot a little bit? Or, or how did you guys come to that? Yeah, Christian used, well, they used the LF and they used the master built lenses. And when we got going, Daniel and I, we liked the look of the master built, but we were concerned about how much fire we were going to be shooting and how the lens characteristics of the master built would handle just the raw flame that was something that daniel and i did a bunch of tests for so at one point we decided to bring in a different set of lenses the tribe sevens that that are all that also have kind of a more vintage style to them so we could test those and daniel and i right away really loved how it looked and they were pretty delicious lenses and so we ended up i think both of us i mean the show is probably shot 90 percent on the 37 mil uh blackwing hey daniel Oh yeah, yeah. So that test much... just just because of the fire led you to a lens that ended up changing the entire choice. What was it about the fire on the master belt that jumped that you were like, let's try something else? It was mostly just kick kickback in the lens, just because of the way uh. that those lenses are tuned. It was just some of the flaring that we were not a hundred percent confident about getting into all these scenes with multiple sources of flames and not having a flame that was going to be like a shot a ghost flame on top of a mm. face. Mm-hmm. So we were exploring the, the Tribe Sevens, and and well, we were happy. I had heard about them. I was really happy to bring them in, and that it was even a op- that it was a, a an option to shoot with them it was exciting. And when we both found that we really loved them, and it still worked as a cousin to the Master Built, that's great. It's awesome you guys got to collaborate on that too, because I know so many shows shoot and people go off in different areas or want to do different things, you know. Do you guys feel like you had like um, sort of like a DP room where you could bounce ideas off each other? Can we talk about what that collaboration looks like over the course of different episodes and going back and forth? Daniel, you want well, it was mostly it? yeah, yeah. It's, in prep, um, we had what was nice is that we had some time in prep, and we had like we had like a month or so. We were we were both on, and when we were in the production office, we would all have meetings like on Zoom, even though we were all in the production office. It's really strange. But then we would do stuff like we'd be, you know, if we were scouting or when we were doing tests, like we did. Yeah, we got to arrange these tests where we were, you know, checking out different lenses and and also like the Frank's apartment set was kind of being built during all that, so we were able to go in there and and sort of test, you know, that whole situation because that had like a massive, you know, three hundred foot backdrop that we spent actually quite a bit of time on, just lighting it for different times of day and stuff like that. So those were kind of all opportunities to just, you know, a lot of those discussions just kind of happen when you're doing other stuff or testing, you know, the effects department is, is like, Oh, we have like three different kinds of snow for you guys to test. Can we bring it in? And we'll just show you this different, 
we'll show you this snow and, and, and you can light it and, you know, see what you think. And, and, you know, like the, there were certain things that we knew were going to be really important to sort out that were going to kind of affect all the episodes, like, like flame, for example, we tested all the different ways we could think of to create light, like a, a, a fire light and including like, you know, using, of course, real fire and just because tr- it, it's always a little bit, that's, that's one thing that's always kind of tricky is like simulating like real fire. And I think both Steve and I really felt like as much as possible, we wanted to use whatever the light source was going to be. Ideally, we would use that light source and use it as a light source, as opposed to trying to create something off camera, which sometimes you have to do anyway, depending on, you know, the scale of the scene. So yeah, we spent quite a bit of time like looking at the different ways that special effects could come in and and, uh, create flame for us, like different shapes of flame, what that would look like on people's faces and and what actual firelight looks like. And, And then we would try to simulate it artificially, knowing that there would be situations that we would have to do that and, you know, how could we get it as close as possible? So we spent yeah, quite a bit of time kind of toying with that. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that we were exploring also was, you know, when you re- use real flame, there's an authenticity to it, you know, that sometimes you, you, your eye, your eye, for me anyway, my eye, I, I can tell the difference. Most, most things I can, when I look at it, I can tell if it's a light or not. And for me, it was finding that balance between if we needed to use a film light, like how do we how do we bridge that gap between it being a you know film light and and real light? And as Daniel was saying, I was most excited about really using real flame. And although real flame is harder and maybe in some ways less typically beautiful because it you know it can usually have a harder shadow to it. I usually opted for using the natural source because I like the authenticity that it brought to the scene as opposed to kind of lighting something super, you know, creamy, soft and beautiful and but but artificial, you know. Well, you guys have given us so much. I wish we could go on, but we're we've been going for a while. The show's great. I really appreciate both of you coming on to do this, talk about it and share all the insights into you, the making of it in your careers and stuff like that. Yeah, we're huge fans. Absolutely. I mean, I, I truly think it's one of the best shows of like the past 20 years. I, I, you know, just from the look and the feel and everything put together, it really is amazing. And I, I mean, if it looked worse, it wouldn't be as good. You know, it's truly like, it's awesome. So we're so happy to have you guys on here. Oh, thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. Happy that you do. You like it. Yeah. Thank you again. Thanks so much to Steve and Daniel for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jason, for jumping in. Thanks to all of you for listening. Look, if you haven't filled out our annual cinematography survey, please do so. It is at nofilmschool.com on the website, and you can find it there up in the big box or in the eyebrow just above the search bar, highlighted in blue. And I'm giving you all this direction about it because this survey is a great opportunity to figure out exactly how much money you should be charging for your video work. How are we doing this? 
We're going to take all the results of the survey, and we have thousands already, but we always want more. We're going to crowdsource that data as we have been, and then we're going to put out results based on where you are, based on how much work you've done, based on what other people in the area are charging, based on what people with your experience level charge. And that should help everybody get a fair rate, or at least a rate commensurate with their experience for whatever they're doing. Because look, a lot of people out there have no idea what to charge. You may be one of them. Either way, you may be charging too much. You may be charging too little. It could be a game changer. And I hate to use that phrase, but I think it applies. For those of you out there working with video and trying to earn the rate that you deserve for your work. So please be sure to check out the survey, fill it out, share it with your DP friends, and keep in touch and keep checking the site because soon we're going to post results. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram and YouTube. If you're still listening, uh, you're a winner. (laughs) You made it to the end. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.